Welcome to SinexLink Tech Leaders Podcast over in Southern California here. Uh, I am uh, the host and the CEO, CEO of SinexLink, and uh, my name is Ayman Chutunji, and I have the pleasure today of speaking with Jim Radziki. Uh, Jim is the uh, Chief Technology Officer at TELUS International in Orange County. Welcome, Jim. I'm oh, happy welcome. to have you. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. Really, really looking forward to it. Well, thank you. Uh, Jim, how are you doing and your family during this pandemic, crazy time? You know, we're doing well. It's just my wife and I and the two dogs here in Orange County. So uh, not, no, no real troubles, uh, you know, with, with this. Um, we've been in good shape, uh, continuing to leverage the takeout service from all the local restaurants uh, that have been available. And of late, we're slowly starting to reopen. We're, uh, we're starting to see some of the local restaurants and bars start accepting uh, patrons for sit-in and dining, but uh, we've done probably too many uh, home quarantine projects, painting and, and other uh, projects around the house. So I'm looking forward to getting back into uh, taking away those homes. Well, that's very good, that's very good. I mean, you basically used your time and enjoyed the, you know, the getting your house done as well as working from home. That's great. Yes. Um, uh, Jim, I mean, I looked at your LinkedIn profile and, you know, it seems like you have a very interesting, like personal life. You know, I would like to talk about your personal first before we talk about some business and, and, and your uh, work achievements. Sure. So, um, Tell me about you. I mean, who is Jim Radziki? I mean, how did you get to be the uh, CTO for, for TELUS? Yeah, sure. Happy to share. I think, you know, uh, it, I, I was born and raised in New York City, actually. So I was on the complete opposite coast <laughs> as things came, as, uh, as growing up. And as I thought through university, uh, being from, uh, from the Northeast, it was very much a business mindset, need to go to business school, need to do, but I wanted to kind of pave my own path and, and decided to go West. So I went to the uh, University of Arizona and my first degree is actually in marketing. And looking back on that degree, um, while I'm completely in technology now, I think the combination of being able to speak to the business and have that business degree and understand it, yet having switched later in my career uh, over to technology, uh, unknowingly at the time, probably was one of the key factors in my success to, uh, to talk through these uh, technical situations or technical environments, but being able to have them in a business conversation. Uh, so really right was after that- Was that, that your motivation, you know, to, to switch between marketing and technical? So, you know, I always had the technical uh, inclination, uh, even way back when, if for folks who would remember who are listening to this, depending on the age group, the Commodore 64 was my first development environment, making my oh. own little database and my own games. Uh, I'm typing the code in and uh, testing my games to see if my younger brother wanted to play them and such. So it was always there, but I think I just had this sense uh, through school that, oh, I really needed the business angle and really needed the business degree. 
But after graduating the first time, I decided to go back uh, to school as I felt, hey, I'm, I'm missing my love here in technology. So I went first for network administration and then through that degree and process, I decided development was really what I loved. So rather than get a third degree, I went the certification route. I uh, grew up initially in the Microsoft uh, stack of services back pre.NET for again, folks who are remembering those. And then through the .NET and then obviously later in my career really became uh, language agnostic. It didn't matter, uh, you hit a certain point in your career and whether it was uh, Java or .NET or whatever, uh, Pro-C, whatever you needed to develop in. And then I felt like I needed to give back a little bit because I had enjoyed that process. So I actually went back to be a teacher uh, and I was teaching uh, uh, in the local university while I, while I had my early jobs, just teaching uh, introduction to programming languages and, and uh, introduction to C++. So nice. uh, and then just really kind of fell in love with the excitement that gets generated from creating your first program and just followed that through the rest of my career. Oh, cool. Cool. Okay, well, you know, it's, it reminded myself because I taught also uh, Microsoft Active Directory after I got my, my MCSE, that back was, um, I mean, I believe in uh, um, 2007 or something like this. Um, but yes, I did, I mean, that's, uh, that was uh, a good memory. Okay, and, and Jim, you know, it seemed like you are a pilot <laughs> and also you love boarding so uh, so tell us talk to us about this yeah so you know again i think reaching back into the past and everyone had that uh tom cruise top gun theme <laughs> uh thinking that i would be some navy aviators one day or something but uh that didn't pan out my eyesight didn't quite make it uh, pre-lasik days to make the pilot so again, on the technology side. Um, so I was living in Virginia at the time and thought, hey, what, what an opportunity I have uh, really close to the special flight rules area and such in, in near Manassas. I lived in Herndon. So decided to uh, go down and, and get a pilot's license and spent uh, the time to uh, kind of fulfill the dream, I guess. I even bought a small little motorcycle that I would ride like Tom Cruise, except mine was only a little 250, <laughs> to the local uh, airports, get in, a, get in a Cessna, and uh, do my lessons. Uh, what's interesting there, though, um, I didn't expect this. Again, life kind of throws some things at you, but I learned a little bit about how to deal with crisis situations by going through the pilot training, which I think was interesting. So they there's a concept of the four C's in piloting. Climb, uh, communicate, confess, and comply. And if you think about as we're troubleshooting technology problems uh, when they're out there, and if you think about it, there's nothing I think scarier than being alone in an airplane and suddenly feel lost, right? You don't know where you are, you don't know where. So if they have rules that apply to that, then any situation on the ground, I, I wanna try to apply these rules. So the first part of it uh, being uh, climb, right? We always talk about it. Take, you're down in the weeds, take that 50,000 foot view, take a step back when you're dealing with an emergency situation and say, how widespread is this? How much of a challenge? Is there a solution over here that I'm missing because I'm you know, nose down in a particular situation? So climb being the first one, take that look back. The second one is communicate. Uh, in the plane, the climb is obviously go up and just literally look around and see what you can see. 
Uh, the next one is communicate. Get on the radio and ask for help from your you know, local air traffic control or other folks. Similar in a business environment, right? The problem you think you're having might have been solved by the person right next to you. And if you don't communicate and talk about these problems that you're experiencing, you may never get to resolution, even though it might have been next to the person next to you. So in a plane, air traffic control can say, hey, I have you on radar, you know, turn left and, and we got you right back on track. Similarly, in a work or technology environment, someone could say, hey, have you tried this? You know, perfect, I'm back on track. The, the third one is confess. Um, and I think this gets into a lot of pride, especially in technology folks, confessing that you may be lost in an airplane, right? Getting on air traffic control on a public radio and saying, hey, by the way, I'm lost could be a bit of intimidating. But, you know, similar in a work environment, confessing that you need help, right? There should be nothing more flattering to a person than you asking them for help. So similar in a tech environment, asking for help. And then finally, uh, comply. Once you get a recommended solution, and this happens a lot with uh, young pilots, is the air traffic control will say, hey, turn to 180 degrees and fly. And they're like, no, 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 I've got it. I, I, I know where I am now. And they go completely opposite direction. Guess what? 15 minutes later, they're right back calling ATC saying I'm lost again. So in a business environment, if you get the help that you ask for and you, you learn the lesson that you need to learn, you know, comply with that and, and implement that solution and answer as you go through. So unknowingly, I learned a whole lot about, you know, dealing with technology uh, situations and challenges by going through the pilot's license uh, training. That's, that's, that's very cool. You know, just I, I'm, I'm glad that you see that, you know, like applying uh, what you have learned in, in the, you know, flying in, in your life, actually in the technology life as well. And I agree with you. I mean, definitely, I mean, we have, to work with others, we have to communicate our issues, we have to comply, we have to convince our shortcomings. So uh, this is this is absolutely, that's what makes people success. I mean, to, uh, to uh, move to different levels. Um, now, I would like to talk about your profession. Sure. So being a CTO, I mean, definitely every company faces so many challenges, you know, uh, and uh, in a technical field. Uh, what, what would you think the most challenge you ever experienced in your career? The biggest challenge that I've experienced in my career, huh, that's an interesting one for sure. Um, I would say, uh, the, the growth and expansion that it takes to become global uh, when you're moving. So multiple, let me take a step back, multiple times throughout my career, I've worked in organizations that were uh, well under a uh, billion dollars. Uh, so closer to say maybe the 250 million companies, big by some standards, but in the grand scheme of you know, global, global international companies, um, uh, a bit smaller the expansion and communication that we're talking about that it takes uh, to grow uh, double in size and then double in size again and then double in size again there's been points in my career where literally within a year we've doubled in size and then the next year you double again managing that growth not only from the people people culture value chain that we're talking about right especially if you're going through acquisition how do you make sure your strong cultural values have made it you know, to, the, to the new companies and the new growth? But then also technically, 
um, how do you make sure you can scale in such a way in which you can leverage the existing assets that you've already purchased and put in place, as well as you know, future-proof to as much as possible, you know, the extent of what you're doing. And those, those push and pull challenges that come, I think, with expansion, which in and of itself is a change, right? And change, I like to use the phrase, change begets outage, right? When you make changes, things tend to break, sometimes for the better, Sometimes they break with challenges, but uh, going through rapid amount of change that comes with growth has probably been um, some of the most learning opportunities that I've gone through for sure. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, here, I mean, a lot of the companies, they struggle to scale, you know. I mean, whether small, medium size, Dallas International is 20,000 employees. I mean, and you told me something that struck me and that you made, you said that within two days, you guys, you were able to send 20,000 employees or convert them from working on, on everyone on his desk to work from home. So how did you do that? I mean, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll correct the numbers a little bit just to make, uh, just okay. for, um, for folks listening in from TI as well. So globally, we have 50,000 employees uh, around oh, okay. the world. So we're actually, uh, we operate out of 50 different countries uh, and such. And when this pandemic started, uh, each of the locations we were in, each of those governments were wondering, what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? You know, what's going to happen? What's in place? So we were monitoring literally the global political landscape, you know, about what's happening. And the first location that actually uh, decided to do a, um, a stay, um, stay at home order was the Philippines. And we have a rather large operation uh, in the Philippines as well. So within the first couple of days, uh, we, we were able to take several thousand of those folks um, uh, and actually bring them uh, to a work at home environment, not just in the Philippines, but others. But the number we like to uh, use is in the first 22 days of operations, we sent 22,000 people uh, from who had never worked at home. We had a very small footprint of work at home prior and moved those 22,000 folks uh, in those. So basically a thousand people a day are switching from their corporate environment to a work at home environment. Uh, now we're well over uh, the, the 30,000 mark and such, and we're, we're pretty much operating. As a matter of fact, we've, we're starting to see a little uh, loosening throughout the planet and possibly equally as challenging uh, and maybe more so, how do you bring those 30 plus thousand, 35 plus thousand people back into the office <laughs> now that all the rules have changed about how much social distancing you have to have, how often you need to clean, how often the space needs to be done? Uh, you know, how do you get those people back in? And, and to be honest, how many of them uh, are going to remain? I uh, wish we had a crystal ball, but you know, how many people will, or companies or our clients will say, you know what, I want to remain working from home. And, and what does that number look like? So, so how did you do that? I mean, what technology did you leverage to be able to uh, send these people 20,000, you know, 1,000 every day to work from home? Yeah, so it's a, a several different technologies. So one of the things I must share about um, TELUS International is we're both a BPO and an ITO, right? So we're a business process outsourcer as well as an IT outsourcer. So we have many, many clients who have many different infrastructure requirements and, and that come. 
first and foremost, I would say those clients and our own infrastructure that was the, the I'd say not without its uh, challenges, but the easiest for sure to get people working was those that were cloud-based. So we at TI heavily leverage uh, the Google Cloud environment. We move most of our internal systems and applications and services over to the cloud. So from there, it was quite, um, quite quick. Uh, we also have some of our own internal uh, VPN type servers, but one of the ones we chose uh, for a global part with very, very rapid deployment was a company called Itopia. Uh, they are a cloud-based Windows VDI server. And within just a couple of days of talking to them, literally we didn't have Windows a, VDI, of course, right? Oh, sorry, virtual desktop environment. Yeah, we have, they're a Windows um, a virtual desktop environment that runs in the Google Cloud. Okay. Within just a couple of days from, uh, from introducing ourselves to the company, literally over the weekend, we deployed the virtual desktop environment to seven different global data centers around the world uh, to then start having our folks in different regions log on and begin taking their processes. So then over the course of just two days, we reconfigured a bit for more security standards and security links uh, to get them up and running. And then, as I mentioned, those 22,000 over 22 days, those were on multiple different systems, sometimes with our client platform, sometimes with our own, all necessary to obviously start securing those environments um, as well. So it was, a, it was an exciting ride for sure, not over. <laughs> as I said, we're still on the, the other end of it, but yeah, lots, lots, uh, lots of great teamwork, people work, the sheer human effort, um, you know, some employees with very small windows, you know, packaging up their office equipment themselves and taking it home or asset, the number of people who had to asset tag, you know, devices that had never left the office before. Um, a testing environments, you know, rapidly set up to say, hey, can I actually power these systems over LTE? Uh, you know, here in Orange County, especially, we're used to a certain, you know, home life and network quality, uh, you know, internet accessibility. You go to different countries around the world and it's not necessarily the case, right? It's, uh, it's uh, cell phone service rather than wires uh, going into people's homes. It's, uh, it's much more remote, you know, environments of testing these systems so rapidly and then iterating through improvements. So you deploy one and then you're like, okay, a little bit better. And now the next week, let's uh, upgrade that a little bit. Next week, let's upgrade that a little bit. Um, it's definitely been a a learning curve for a lot of folks and, uh, and a great way, uh, I think a great show of just the human potential to get this done in this time. You mentioned uh, while you're talking about securing those users as well. So, you know, in the work from home, there has been a lot of challenges. <clears throat> some of it, you know, like phishing, some of it, you know, working from home is insecure network. Uh, so uh, the, a lot of customers, a lot of clients, color companies, they struggle with this, you know, situation. So a lot of people did, don't, didn't know how to handle this situation. How to secure, like a, somebody bringing his own device, you know, or working on his home laptop or, you know, and then they need to access uh, 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 company resources. You, like in your situation, you were in the cloud, which is great. But you mentioned about security a lot. So what security measures have you guys taken to secure the users, the data, the end users, email, you know, uh, the, uh, the endpoints and, and so forth? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, there's, there's multiple different what we call security postures that came into play and, and different degrees that we would leverage depending on the client's need or the type of application or the service or our own internal functions, you know, that we wanted to perform uh, on those. So initially, uh, and this is obviously more based on the sense of zero trust, right, sort of trust no one and make sure they're all secure. Uh, looking at what are the services that we're, we're bringing across. So initially the applications themselves, making sure that they met the standards and met the uh, requirements for, you know, being secure, whether that be, you know, simple, uh, you know, HTTPS through a browser uh, and such. Then on top of that, if we needed more, we actually deployed, as I mentioned, the VDI solution. So virtual desktop environments that we can lock down controls. So for example, even if it's a, a bring your own device, through the virtual desktops, we would disable USB ports or disable cameras or do uh, keystroking or not able to launch multiple applications, you know, taking over so that it really treats their, their own device more like a terminal uh, as it pops through. We did that um, through multiple VDI solutions, including the cloud one I mentioned with Itopia. Further than that, and this gets through sort of the iteration almost, you know, day to day, week to week as we were going through, we also looked at how can we truly extend the work environment and the work network, uh, people wanting to use their hard phones again or you know, leveraging these devices. We absolutely leveraged um, the Cisco Meraki devices uh, in that sense as well and deployed quite a few of those, which essentially is a VPN box that you bring to your home network. You plug it into your router. We would pre-configure these beforehand. In some cases, if we ship PCs, we'd also ship two-factor you know, authentication type devices with them. Tell the, the home user, just simply plug your device into this Meraki VPN uh, device that we've created. And for those that wanted to back to the hard phone experience also being secure, plug the hard phone that we shipped you know, back into this device as well. And we are essentially able to extend all of the rules and regulations and controls and compliance features that we had from the office environment through this VPN device to the home users network uh, as well. Looking at a future mode of operation though, as we, again, everyone's learning, you know, as we go through this process, I know there's a lot of opportunity that sits with inside the applications themselves. So these are a little longer term, you know, uh, not only our, uh, our own applications, client applications, the whole concept of what needs truly to be shown to an end user uh, is, is being relooked at. Uh, for example, I'll use a credit card security. Everyone knows PCI compliance and, you know, the things you need to do. Uh, obfuscating the data, hiding it, who has access control to it. Um, taking a step back, back to this you know, comment about you know, looking at it from 50,000 feet, does the data even need to truly be there? Looking at the workflow process, uh, in the case of a credit card, can I get an acceptance from the payment gateway rather than seeing the full credit card information of that customer? So over the course of time, I think no one knows the exact number that will stay at home, but as more and more people continue to work from uh, anywhere locations or remote environments, uh, the application infrastructure part of this will change and the way in which we capture data will change so that only the minimum necessary is kind of making it out to the, to the employee's desktop. And that will uh, much more be in, a, uh, in line with a zero trust environment, right? I like to say keeping honest people honest. <laughs> if I don't even ship them the data, then there's no reason for me to worry 
is someone walking behind them taking a picture of the screen you know or can i see them these types of tech uh all can be eliminated uh, with some of the omni-channel capabilities that are out there today okay um you know what i i know that i switched subject but i want to go back to uh the growth we, we talk about a little bit and the growth everybody as you said a lot of people actually struggle with the growth so what do you believe the main factor that make the company grow or i mean like employees for example culture uh, you know technology uh in your opinion now with working for an international company and it growing you know you guys have been growing for the last few years and i, I believe keeps going growing so in your opinion what make that growth or make the company scalable and be able to grow faster yeah and it's uh it's easy to say but very difficult to implement and it is that uh that culture value chain there is such a sense and it'll sound cliche to say but an employee first attitude uh or a team member first attitude at telus international that everything we do starts with you know what is the impact to the employees and the team members and are they being heard and how do we operate i got probably one of the best um, uh, quotes from a client who came into one of our locations and they said jim it's really interesting but i your culture is palpable <laughs> they're like when i walk into your sites and i walk into your locations you can literally feel the culture and I don't know, people have obviously switched jobs throughout their careers, or not everyone, but many have, and you walk in and you often hear people talking about their next career move and their next place. I recall one of my first days of joining uh, TELUS International and walking with uh, some of the team members. And it struck me that even then, the, my first or second day, someone says to me, why would anyone ever want to leave TELUS International, right? Think about your coworkers and stuff. And you know, the people who ask that question, why would anyone ever want to leave? And I sit on um, uh, conference calls today or meeting rooms and, and you hear people who have been with uh, not only us, but our parents uh, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. You know, if you're five, you're still young. You're still really young within this environment, you know, being somewhere. And for a technology role in technology positions where it used to be seen as, hey, you need to update your resume. You need to shift, you know, frequently and more. Uh, it's such an incredible environment from that people aspect of what we do. And then that enables, I think, a sense of empowerment, true empowerment to the employee that, hey, I don't have to be fearful of trying something and making a mistake, right? My, my, my team members are behind me. I could be a little more aggressive in an, in an innovation, right? Or it could be extremely thoughtful about the processes, you know, that we're taking and, and how we're going to implement something because I have this sense of comfort, you know, of the folks that are with me. So it sounds kind of cliche and it's hard to say, you know, you can't just go buy it or you can't put a nice slogan up to do it, but it has to be in, you know, every way in which you react and uh, every way you act. Um, and I, I really believe that's uh, something we, we just, it's an amazing culture at, at TELUS International for that. And it enables great technology to happen because of it, uh, because of this uh, support of, of the folks. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the, like, uh, how many offices at Talos International do you guys have, roughly? 
Yeah, we have just over 50 locations around the globe. So as I mentioned a few, pretty much all of the major continents uh, that we operate in as well. Um, uh, so North America, uh, Latin America, Europe, uh, we have uh, our latest operations to put those in there are uh, we recently acquired um, a company called CCC out of Europe. Uh, they're primarily based in, uh, in Germany, um, but they're also quite, quite a bit of other locations, so too many to list them all as it goes. Uh, we also opened up recently in China, so uh, Chengdu, China, we operate out of there. Uh, we also operate out of uh, uh, Noida in India, and then, uh, as I mentioned, Philippine locations, Guatemala, El Salvador. So not only do we operate out of 50 different locations around the globe, we also operate in over 50 languages. Uh, we say 50 plus, because oh. <laughs> even some of our operations actually use uh, American Sign Language as well. So we do customer support uh, in sign language. So it makes for a very robust and dynamic environment. And talk about a melting pot of cultures, you know, an understanding and the empathy that goes in uh, to what it takes um, and to feel again that culture and to know that each of the folks in the locations we spend a lot of time what we call Telus days of giving something we uh, 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 leveraged from our parent company Telus up in Canada uh, where we truly give back to the communities we live in we have these days set aside a year where you may get a thousand people taking on a, a project you know to either rebuild a school in the community or plant a forest or, you know, le leverage some community uh, 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 projects for us to work on. And we do that in every one of those locations that we operate in. And it's just a way to, again, to, to bond us all together around the globe. So really, really powerful stuff. I mean, this is, this is probably makes it harder. I mean, with different culture, you know, multiple countries, multiple languages. Um, so definitely, and, and the company is growing. Yes, we're still growing uh, uh, incredibly, you know, year over year it's, uh, the, to the size of where we are, like I said, over over 50,000 or near 50,000 employees right now. So uh, and, and no stopping there, you know, as we continue on. Um, yeah, there is a sense. I mean, it is it is difficult. It takes a lot of work, uh, but well, you know, well, the rewards are spectacular for the work it takes to kind of bring everyone in and act and act as one family. We also do have a concept, and I've used this one before that I refer to as global, right? Being global and local at the same time. You want the benefits and the economies of scale of being a global company, but you don't want to lose those local flares and local, uh, you know, customs and, and local culture that also make it a great place, you know, to be as well. So there's a fine balance in being global, right? So how do you leverage the great things? So as an example, with the days of giving type stuff, we have a policy that says, yes, we want to give back to the communities, but each of the regions decide with a local community board, what are the projects that they want to perform, you know, in their community that are most meaningful for them. So we don't dictate and say, you must build a school, you must build a house, you know, it's just, hey, here's what we're willing to contribute. You locally with your team and your community decide what is it that you want to improve that helps your situation out the best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very well, very well. Uh, Jim, you're holding CISSP, which yes. is a Certified Information System Security Professional. Yes. Uh, 
Tell us about this. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I grew up in the developer path. I mentioned a degree in network and administration, and I did that for a little bit. But really, my love was development, as I mentioned, all the way back for those Commodore 64 days uh, and such. And as security, you know, really takes on a role that it's pervasive in everything we do. Uh, I decided as a, as a CIO at the time, I was still a CIO, I said, I really need to understand the CISSP, you know, world and, and the security world and what we're in. And I'm, it, may, it may be a quirk of my personality, I'll say, but I truly enjoyed the process of learning all of the different aspects of security and, and how they all come together, you know, to create uh, a secure posture of what's, uh, of what's needed, you know, for today's systems, all the way from you know, human and, and, uh, and, and social manipulation, you know, in order to attempt to steal data all the way up to encryption services and such. And I do still love the, you know, the CIA triangle of confidentiality, integrity and accessibility. I think you can have very human conversations with people back to that concept of a business conversation versus a technical one and explain, you know, the security posture and is it confidential? Is the data actually accurate and do the right people have access to it? Using that allows you to, I think, go quite into a bit of a lot of different conversations about, you know, why security is um, uh, important, but also, you know, how it's really a tool to make the environment better and not something that should be seen as a compliance or an obstacle, you know, to sort of get around. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, being an expert, on cybersecurity and security, um, uh, have you leveraged any like anti-phishing for the company for Dallas International, or have you guys used? Do you guys use any uh, any uh, endpoint protection software to protect your assets? Yeah, so we use, I mean, I can't divulge, obviously, all of the unique, you know, components that we actually do and, and leverage in place. I, I did share, obviously, for our at-home environment, those Meraki devices for the VPN networks that allowed us to secure, you know, and, and extend our network in this, um, in this current time. We do have some relationships with different organizations that we go through. So I guess what I'll say there is it is a constantly ever-changing, you know, environment to keep track of. I think security is something that sort of transcends a bit uh, the normal business practice. And if there's one place that we, we all as partners and companies, you know, can, can uh, use the term co-opetition, it's sharing of the information that you have within the security environment and, and fields. Um, I'll tell you, uh, sharing a story in a previous life, not in, in, or in a previous uh, work experience, Two companies, one which I worked for and another, who on the, on the outside, people would have thought were, you know, uh, enemies who would never get along and never even be in the same room together. Well, we were tracking down uh, a particular hacker who was breaking into a hosting environment, and we decided to reach out to this competition that everybody thought, you know, was crazy. And we said, hey, we're, you know, we're having this problem opening the kimono back to the communicate message that I said before and sharing. Well, in that little bit of sharing, those folks actually came back to us and said, you know what, we're not only aware of this person, we think we found him on our network, you know, and we have him in. And then jointly we work together to actually, you know, supersede all of the competition that we have in business because we knew it was better for the, the, the entire 
user base of both of us. And to be honest, better for society in general, if we worked together to kind of bring down uh, some of the hackers and things. So one of the things I think that I love about the security environment, um, when it's truly looked upon as a, a beneficial aspect of the business that we do, can transcend you know, those business environments and say, hey, we're truly making this a better place. Um, but specifically to your question. Yeah, um, but, but you know, the, the thing is actually international company, different culture, different languages. I mean, and you know, number one, like cyber attacker probably is email phishing yeah. today. So how do you guys educate your users about phishing? Do you yeah, guys... So, so funny that you mentioned that because this morning and I can share with you, you know, you didn't ask me this question earlier on, but literally this morning, even me, I'm not exempt. I had my, uh, my review and my reminder notice pop up that I had to take my security and phishing awareness training. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went through the, the coursework that reminded me I, I did pass just so everyone knows. <laughs> <laughs> I want, you know, but again, you watch the videos and you understand it. And it is important, I think, because they change a lot. And I think so many people look at cybersecurity attacks as being a technical problem, right? Yes, there's an aspect to it, but you look at these folks as being, you know, down in a dark cave somewhere. And we use the term like dark webs, you know, and all these things. But the truth is the social engineering part of it is probably the scarier part. So like you're saying, these these email or phone call phishing where they're actually calling in for folks and trying to befriend you with all of the social information that's available out there today to say, hey, I know your boss just went on a trip, not because they know them, because they just looked on Facebook, you know, or, or LinkedIn to see that they switched, using that information to try to, you know, get the employees trust and then, you know, then violate, then we've opened the door to them. No matter what security standard you put in place, no matter what tool you're using at that point, once someone opens the door and lets them in, there's not a lot you can do. So it's a, it's a key question that you asked about, you know, how do you keep this up? And I think it does tie back again to the strength of that value chain. People who want to be at a company, they want to protect the company, right? If it's a place they want to be, then they know they don't want this damage to take place. They're not as willing to take, you know, uh, payments to, to, you know, share information or not as willing to, to fall for those tricks if their mind is set on, hey, I really like where I am and like where I work. And that that obviously goes throughout the, you know, all the environments that we operate are in everywhere around the world. You know, if, if people have a strong culture value, then they're absolutely encouraged to keep things safe. Uh, so another one of those soft values that you don't really consider about, you know, the strength of culture, but it actually helps us helps us with things like fishing and such as well. Very, very good. So, all right, I mean, a lot of company like this, I'm telling you. We have a lot of customers. Um, some of them, they believe, you know what, we're okay right now, we don't need it. And they acknowledge that, you know, their users probably um, are fine. Honestly, sometimes I get emails, they look just kind of like very, very real emails and honestly myself i i kind of fell into that and in one time and and i clicked on an email uh, mistakenly and i got put myself in trouble even though we have a program ourselves we have you know uh, our protection but this is 
very dangerous. Yeah, thing. you know, the criminals are not stupid people. And I think if you make the assumption that they're stupid people, then you're in trouble. <laughs> uh, these are really, really smart, uh, often syndicates, you know, funneling money back to much bigger causes. It's not a one person, you know, often just out there trying to be. This is well-organized, you know, machines uh, of people and process and technology that are in place. And their entire game of cat and mouse is seeing what we put up to how can they work around it. Then we work around that and then they work around something else. Yeah, and you're right. actually, you're, you're very right. The, the idea that, you know, look for the misspellings or look for the, you know, the, the name, it's harder because they're smart people. They're going to try to fix those errors so that it looks, you know, really real as it goes. Obviously with phishing, one of my simple things to do is, you know, look underneath the name of who, who sent it, right? So mouse over that email address to see if it makes sense to where it really came from. Uh, if you start seeing just because they have the name doesn't necessarily mean it's a real address. And know that, uh, you know, as, as you know well, um, people don't ask for those important details via email uh, anymore. You know, that you're not going to get blindsided via email. It's going to be a, a redirect to log back into the site that you're, that's asking through that authenticated method. So that's my other trick is if I see something rather than looking at the email, I'll just go and if it's one of my companies, like a bank or something, I'll just log back in and see if I see the same message in my secure portal. Because if it's there, then I know. But you're right. It's a, it's a super challenging environment. Um, and you think it's not just a regular employee. It's all the way up to the C-level. Folks get fooled. It doesn't matter where you are in the organization and where you are. Uh, it's not a problem of just your low-end workers who need to watch these things. If anything, it's more so the C-level staff because they go through so much so fast easily tricked and fooled by seeing some of these things. I mean, we have customers, the CFO wired money approved like $250,000 to be wired. And it was a scam, you know, it just came from a phishing, very legit phishing email. It looks like very, very correct and right. And he just gave the okay. Yeah, and it was uh, you know, they'll, they'll come in as the admin and they'll use, again, social media to say, hey, I know my admin's on vacation, so I need you to do this because they're, then that person, yeah, I know they're on vacation. It must be real. They're, like I said, they're not, uh, they're not stupid people that are doing this. <laughs> they may yeah. not be the most reputable, but they're not stupid. We know that. Yeah. So do, do you guys send any like uh, phishing kind of emails, testing to your... We do. Um, we absolutely, we act, we have, uh, we have lots of different security protocols and programs, right? For different things, um, uh, some uh, compliance and GDPR and phishing, as I mentioned this morning. We usually send video and, uh, from our own internal learning platform. So we track, you know, who took it, how they did it, how often they took it. We keep track, you know, what's going. But we also do, yeah, tests um, and see, you know, who's, who's sending things, uh, who's clicking, who's opening. You get, uh, you get shamed if you, uh, if you fell for the trick, you know, as it goes and, and share those out. Um, but we also have a very good uh, security um, uh, team and a, and a security NOC, you know, the, the security version of a NOC, so the SOC uh, operating yeah. office, where you can send if you're worried, right, you can do um, some information and share it with them to say, hey, you know, what is this, where does it go, and we can give you, you know, feedback on, on what you're looking at or why. Very good, very good. Uh, okay, I, I mean, is there any... Uh, uh, 
Any plan? What, what's the plan for uh, like the growth plan for the next like the three years? Yeah, so, you know, we continue to grow our digital footprint, I think, or our digital capabilities, I should say. Um, what we're learning more and more for any, uh, any industry, but in particular, when you're looking at um, IT outsourcing or, or business process outsourcing, the companies that only do one thing or a scene is just a button, a seat, you know, or I can just be a little more efficient and save you some money that that's not winning uh, anymore. Um, the, you must be able to sort of design, build and deliver, you know, the solutions that are in place. So many people, technology changes so fast, don't know what's out there. You need a consulting or design type service to even help people understand, you know, what is it? They may not even know the problem. This gets back to the being able to speak the business language. Mm -hmm. Then once that business language is translated into, okay, this is what we want, having that skill set to build it for them, whether it's a custom solution or a transformation to the cloud or whatever it is that's going to solve that problem. And then last, I think what we're seeing is uh, the delivery more and more people are less, uh, I think, asking us for, I just need hosted infrastructure or hosted environment. They want you to deliver the solution and in a lot of ways manage that solution for them once it's up and running. So technology is still there, it's still strong, it's still the underlying provider, but I think even more so, the conversation has switched to uh, business conversations. So for the technology folks, you know, that might be listening in or on the call, I think brush up on the business side of the house, because <laughs> I think that's the that's a, a key success that has been in for me is being able to talk to the business side, then flip around the corner and go translate that into code, you know, or, or network configurations for the folks behind the scenes. Cool. That was actually the advice I wanted to ask you about, you know, okay, what do you recommend? What do you advise other companies you know, to protect their data, to protect their endpoints, to protect their, their users. So I, don't know, I know you mentioned right now, you know, but from the business side, but if you can elaborate a little bit more, it would be actually good. I mean, from yeah. The, so you know, as as we've talked all along, don't underestimate that culture value chain portion of things, right? If you think about team member engagement, employee engagement, all of these things in that strong culture make every one of your employees an advocate for you, right? And, and they're actually actively working to protect, uh, you know, things that are there. From a personal perspective, as I mentioned, you know, growing up in the organization and growing in technology and growing, um, speaking to the customers about, um, about the business problem that you're looking to solve, right? They're, they're not going to be able to talk to you about technology. They're only going to be able to say, hey, I'm worried about lose. I'm worried about my CFO clicking, you know, on a on an email. They're worried about, you know, hey, how do I get people to work from home if this happens again or we get a resurgence and I need to go back out? Most folks aren't going to say, hey, can you tell me uh, about a Meraki device that I can extend a virtual VPN out to my class, you know, out to my agent's desktop? They're not going to ask that question unless it's, you know, two tech folks getting together. But uh, the real benefit comes in when you say, okay, how am I going to translate what you're asking me for into a solution that makes sense for you? And I think that's really the key to success. Uh, and one of the ways, obviously, we, that it's helped me and I think our company as a whole kind of get, get through and grow the way we have. It looks good. Well, I mean, we almost more than like 45 minutes now here. <laughs> and at the time, you know, run very fast and uh, 
but at the end, uh, uh, unless you have something else to add, uh, feel free to go ahead. And if if uh, if we're good here, uh, I would like uh, to thank you. I don't know if you'd like to add something. Go ahead, uh, Jim. No, just uh, I pre I really appreciate the conversation. You know, I think there's so much going on out there right now. I you know I, I do uh, you know after all those traveling places I've been. Uh, I think I mentioned you were reading my profile, you know, having been to 38 countries and 47 US states, I've settled here in Orange County. It's a, it's a great place for sure uh, to operate. And, and I'm really interested in, you know, what the new norm is gonna be. I have my little crystal ball I'm trying to predict. I think we've fast forwarded uh, the work from anywhere uh, movement to, to by maybe 10 years in this last month, but that's only my own opinion. So I'm really, I'm really interested to see how many of these uh, new opinions on what the art of the possible is actually will stick, and we actually take advantage of uh, what we're truly capable of. So thanks for, you know, having me on. I really, you know, enjoyed the talk and and look forward to it. Well, I, we I enjoyed the talk as well, and you know, definitely you added a lot of information, and I'm very sure the audience will will benefit from it and. Uh, Again, I mean, uh, we have Jim Radziki. Jim is the CTO at uh, TELUS International. TELUS spelled like T-E-L-U-S, International. So if you guys would like to uh, uh, look at Jim profile, you can go ahead and LinkedIn. Uh, Jim uh, Radziki, his last name is spelled like R-A-D-Z-I-C-K-I. So Jim, thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate it and uh, definitely we'll, we'll have a talk sometime soon. And uh, for everybody who's listened to, to us, we do appreciate the time and you guys took the time to listen to this uh, uh, podcast. And if you have any feedback to me, please reach out. My name is Ayman Chukunji. My email address is at I do appreciate it. And thank you very much for it. Perfect. Thanks, Jim. Thank you, Jim. Stay safe.